I'm going to talk about uh, eco-towns, settlements that are being developed or modified specifically to meet various environmental credentials and to meet their um, adverse, uh, to minimise rather, their adverse impact on the natural environment whilst providing high quality homes, work, resources of various sorts and social spaces for the people who live in them. In fact, the majority, of course, of the world's population now lives, like many of you here tonight at Barnard's Inn Hall, in urban areas such as London, and that proportion is growing rapidly in almost every country in the world. Of course, our future as a species will unfold largely in urban settings, uh, which is a theme I began to explore last year, actually, in a talk on, on megacities. But consequently, working out what makes a town truly eco or sustainable is a very important matter if we wish to survive as a species and to have a satisfactory quality of life. Tonight I'm going to talk particularly about the UK, but of course this has relevance internationally. Most of the examples I'm going to use tonight uh, come from the UK, but there are one or, two, uh, uh, one or two others as well. And for those people who listen internationally, I'm sure you will see resonances with your own settings. Now, over time in the UK, we've made numerous attempts to build this type of eco-settlements. We've trialled the parameters that seem to be important in defining an e eco-settlement, really using the inhabitants effectively as in experimental guinea pigs. So I want to explore the extent to which we've been successful in identifying what is important. I'm going to leave you to draw some of your own conclusions based on the imagery uh, as we go through the talk. But it is crucial, of course, that, we base, uh, that if we are to base our policies, environmental policies and other policies, for the development of settlements on evidence rather than on hyperbole, fake news, and in some cases, uh, some cases, downright lies, it's very important that we have this evidence. Um, I'm also going to um, perhaps offer a, a, an implicit perspective on whether the architectural profession is currently working effectively to this end. Uh, architectural style, as we shall see in a minute, is something which is important, and to be truly sustainable, towns obviously need to be attractive as well as fulfilling places in which to live. But we can't afford to build towns that are just striking monuments to the architects who design them or to those who finance and commission their buildings. It's not enough that individual buildings are beautiful, whatever that means, because a collection of beautiful shelters, even shelters with impeccable environmental credentials, is not a sustainable settlement. So, for example, at the moment, we trumpet that we can build remarkably en energy-efficient buildings, zero-carbon buildings even, but if the systems around them don't support the lives of the populations inside them in a wider sense, these buildings and cities can't be environmentally friendly or sustainable as a whole. They cannot be eco-towns. So eco-towns need to incorporate such things as effective and efficient transport systems, access to energy, food, clean water, efficient waste disposal, and work opportunities for those who need them, or from those perhaps who we as a society require work. Now looking uh, over the horizon perhaps, even if work 
disappears largely in an apparently utopian future where automation and artificial intelligence take away some of the boring and repetitive jobs and income is redistributed to people according to need rather than effort or ability, people will still need occupying in some way. They will need shops and schools or other mechanisms through which to acquire the things they need to sustain them. And they will need to engage with education and group-based leisure activities. If we aspire genuinely to a low-carbon future, and in the UK we are actually tied by law to do that through the Climate Change Act, it's likely that these facilities need to be available easily, relatively close at hand to where people live. So those are important parameters in determining what an eco-town might be. Many people would also say, for example, that eco-towns need to incorporate green space, not only for biodiversity reasons, but in order to maintain the mental health of residents, particularly children. Eco-towns perhaps also need to accommodate diversity in their populations to include people of all ages with differing needs and to provide opportunities for these people to meet and mix and to be entertained. So we need settlements, if they are to be sustainable, that are equally uh, economically and socially viable, as well as being environmentally benign. Now, before we start to look at in more detail at this, I want to take you on a stroll around a small, but very traditional English settlement, so that we can inspect and reflect on some of the features of towns that are commonly viewed as attractive to residents. That attraction, as we, uh, many of you may agree, I suspect, arises largely by virtue of the gradual accumulation of buildings over centuries. Now let's look at some pictures. Traditional English villages and small towns commonly have public space at their heart with groups of houses around some sort of monument, often a war memorial in, in England. Uh, locally sourced building materials are typically used. Here we can see stone, stucco, brick, um, napped flint, I think, in a minute. There we are. Uh, no, we'll come to that in a minute. Napped flint. And old agricultural buildings may have been redeveloped for residential use. I think particularly in the building on the right, you can, it's quite interesting building, the one on the right. It's got an arrow slit in it at the bottom. These traditional villages are often lined with houses, often only opening directly onto pavements with small yards behind. They have historic remnants, dovecots in this case. Um, we get Georgian, oh, there's the flints, and we get Georgian and Victorian houses intermixed in these settlements. This kind of thing. 19th century villages sometimes included community-managed housing, such as almshouses for poor, elderly, or otherwise needy people. These settlements may include buildings with unusual architectural characteristics built to fit into odd spaces. They may be, there may be shops scattered among the houses. Some buildings with distinctive characteristics, such as I think here you can see towards the back of the image some Edwardian style with wrought iron pillars. Traditional English villages of sufficiently large size usually have one or two shops that meet residents' immediate needs for things like groceries and ironmongery, or indeed confectionery. 
The shops here in this settlement are lovely in every sense. Now, you probably can't see in the sign on the right um, how lovely these shops are, but the, the, the sign on the right uh, tells us in the small print that the shop is, is a purveyor of super lovely things. Okay. And uh, public web postings repeat how lovely the shops are. And again, for those of you that can't read this one, it says, this is a posting on the web about this settlement, lovely individual shops, a quilter's paradise, a beautiful bead shop, wonderful clothes shops, a waitrose. For those internationally, that's an upmarket supermarket. Lovely cafes, bike shops, gift shops, flower shops, along with a lovely garden centre, and food shops which specialise in Dorset produce from olives, wine, chocolates, and, of course, Dorset cereals. Now, some, some of you are probably beginning to get a little bit ahead of me here in where this is. Um, again, we've got repurposed warehouses and industrial premises. Apparently, we've got a lovely arcade where you walk to Waitrose. We've got... Um, I think I showed before probably this one, yes. We've got at the back there a butter market. Um, very traditional British uh, construction of, of the uh, anything, 16th, 17th, 18th century, for, to accommodate weekly or monthly fairs and markets. And um, whilst the ravages of time are apparent in some of the buildings, you see the yellow stucco building here is leaking dye from the brickwork underneath, and there's some evidence of rot in some of the woodwork in some of these properties, um, there are well-appointed buildings, some of which are distinctly strange in this kind of location. So here we've got a building with some rather odd pillars at the top, and alongside the Georgian townhouses, we've got Italianate-style villas, and what appears to be, and there's another one, and what appears to be a French chateau. Now, as I said, some of you may be well ahead of me here. All is not as it seems in this place. Do you know where it is? Would you like to say where it is? It's Poundbury in Dorset. Uh, the dates on some of these buildings give it away. You can possibly just see that one says 2009, uh, as does the crest of the Duchy of Cornwall. It is um, instigated, or it was, Poundbury, instigated by Charles, the Prince of Wales, in the interests of establishing an environmentally friendly settlement and promoting traditional vernacular architecture. Planning for this urban village was done by uh, an architect or uh, an urban designer called Leon Creer. Construction began only in the late 1990s. Now, it's something of a film set. It's very artificial. I think the Prince of Wales' sincerity can't be doubted, and he's obviously continued to push forward his views on architecture and ecology over the last 30 years very energetically. Um, but this is a big experiment. With some, at the moment, about 3,000 residents, Poundbury is actually an effectively, effectively a suburb of Dorchester, which has a population of about 20,000, um, rather, perhaps, than an eco-town in its own right. It has attracted both plaudits and criticism. One architectural reviewer described it as fake, heartless, authoritarian, and grimly cute. Um, being rather more critical of the residents, one, uh, another, archi again, architectural reviewer, characterised it as an over-sanitised, middle-class ghetto 
that has a whiff of resignation that there is nothing positive to live for, so we must, ret so we must retreat to the past. As I said, in places it smacks of a movie set with little behind the frontages. Perhaps, therefore, this is not an eco-town, but an ego-town, resulting from a prominent person's desire to shape the landscape in his own way and the architect's intentions of leaving a legacy of memorable, if rather strange, buildings. Having said that, it certainly does have some of the characteristics that seem desirable for an eco-town. It has a school, which, as you see here, is in very modern buildings, not unlike a school I think you would see anywhere else. It has jobs, some jobs, within walking distance of the housing. Um, I don't know how many people are employed making breakfast cereal, but presumably some local people. It has um, accommodation for senior citizens. Um, I do actually think this image, if you see there, it says apartments for the over-70s. Hurry, selling fast. Um, <laughs> Actually, I think it looks rather like a car park for the elderly. I don't know what you think, but a multi-storey car park for the elderly. Um, a, third, a third of the houses are for rent, and public, there is public transport. I don't know how it, frequent it is. It's run by electric buses uh, to nearby Dorchester and Weymouth. Nothing came while I was standing there, but uh, uh, there, there is a bus service. And there are restaurants and cafes. There is a lovely supermarket, apparently, with a lot of parking in the centre of town. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, roads are not all demarcated for cars, and that's supposed to encourage reduced speeds, and there is provision for cyclists. The number of garages is interesting, too. It seems to me relatively small walking around. I didn't do a, a, a numerical analysis, but there are lots of yards and carports for parking. Um, the disadvantage is, obviously, the intention is to, to remove both the need and the aspiration to drive. In fact, it is apparent from the um, census, uh, from various uh, local authority statistics, that car ownership is actually higher amongst Poundbury residents than the regional norm, which is perhaps rather unfortunate given the aspiration. But this is an affluent place. Um, it's an affluent and rather elderly place, uh, according to... Uh, the data that's held by the local authority. Housing is relatively densely placed. It's about 15 or 20 houses to the acre. Uh, most of them don't have significant garden space, but the countryside is accessible, at least at the moment, at, when this is at a size of 3,000 or so residents. The variety of architectural styles and rather chaotic street layout are actually almost bewildering. And... That's a characteristic, too, of an organically grown settlement. But despite that, despite some of these uh, positive uh, attributes, as you see from the sign here, the road sign, which has been carefully amended by somebody on the way into Poundbury to remove the Poundbury notice and put ugly buildings, um, not everybody likes it. Now, it's quite difficult to find out what residents think because residents have an interest in saying this is a lovely place to live, particularly if they're trying to move out. <laughs> but I would say, if you look on TripAdvisor, which is obviously reflects largely the interests of visitors, um, support is rather muted. You can see there, just on the left-hand side of the screen, that, on average, it's average. And if you look at the commentary, there is quite a lot of very negative comment, particularly from young people. 
um, saying there's nothing to do here. Now, I have to say, the village where I live, there's similarly lots of negative comment from young people saying there's nothing to do here either. Um, but uh, it's, uh, as I say, it's not been universally welcomed. Now, architectural quality, of course, is a matter of individual judgment. Buildings may be seen as beautiful in the eyes of their beholders, and of course, attractiveness, attraction, can also be generated from where, the way in which buildings function. If you have an intrinsically, uh, an, a building which has an intrinsically low environmental impact, that might be regarded as stunning, just in its own right, regardless of what it actually looked like. Now, I, I, I show you this one. This is, um, this is a, a building in Vienna. It's a, it's Vienna Art, a Museum of Art, sitting amongst the traditional red roofs. It has absolutely impeccable environmental credentials. Um, in fact, so strange is its appearance, somebody described it as a giant slug. Um, those are solar panels on the, on the top of it, by the way. So strange is its appearance that I checked it on Google Earth before including it in the, in, the, in the lecture. I didn't take the photograph myself, and I thought it might be an example of an elaborate hoax, actually, or, or some fake news, but it is apparently real, and there you can see it on Google Earth. And some people think it is beautiful. Um, so architectural uh, qualities are in the eye of the beholder. There's another one here. This is a building in Mumbai, in India. Again, great environmental credentials, really good energy efficiency, access to green space, and so on. I'm not sure about the, whether it's a beautiful building or not. Architects uh, say that it is. Closer to home, here we see um, some buildings being constructed in Hemel Hempstead. Uh, a set of apartments that are apparently a beacon of sustainable luxury, whatever that is. Uh, it, might be a, uh, it might be an oxymoron. Beacon, of course, is the developer, the, the developer of this building. It has all the latest environmentally friendly technology. It has windows that darken automatically. The structure is carbon neutral, at least as far as its day-to-day -day operation goes, so the blurb says. Now... The point here is that environmental, uh, individual buildings incorporating the latest environmentally friendly technology do not necessarily make for a settlement that is sustainable overall. You can, of course, reach your own conclusions on whether you would like to live in any of these um, settlements or around that building um, in the buildings in Mumbai and Vienna. Technology can be deployed in some very strange ways. Green roofs, for example, often cited as an intrinsic necessity for an eco-town. Uh, they take up the, the, the rainwater, reduce the runoff of rainwater, encourage infiltration and carbon uptake by plants. These are uh, sedges, I think, on, on, this, on this image, which is in uh, Scandinavia somewhere. They can be very significant in eco-design. But not all green roofs are genuinely adding to sustainability. This is a great one. This is a tiny green roof over a petrol pump in, uh, in Almo in Sweden. So I've got mixed views about that and whether that is a, a legitimate part of, a, a, of an eco-town. And some technologies, really good environmental technologies, apparently generate unforeseen side effects. Now, this is a system, I don't know if any of you have seen this, this is a system called NVAC, which is a, a waste removal system 
Um, it's, uh, it's been trialled, it was trialled in Hammerby in Sweden, uh, where the inlets to this thing are put inside apartments as well as outside in, in litter bins, and it's being trialled in Wembley in London. I haven't seen it, actually. I don't know if anybody here has seen it. But um, uh, what happens is the waste is sucked away into underground sorting systems. You can see part of the network there at the, uh, uh, on the left of the image. And um, there's a very complex set of uh, networks under the streets where the waste just gets, you can see a bag of waste there just getting sucked along. Um, it's very stylish. Uh, it looks very technologically advanced but of course it does require very significant energy to operate it. And it does seem to reduce littering, but at the expense of carbon emissions. So not all technology, not all environmental technology uh, is either appropriate for an eco-town or indeed for anything else that might be um, regarded as being environmentally friendly. If, of course, you could power this from solar uh, or renewables of some sort, you might be in a, in a, a different ballgame but at the moment, that's not the case in Wembley. Now, of course, other approaches to eco-settlements uh, eschew technology almost altogether. This is uh, somewhere in Pembrokeshire. A uh, photograph was taken in 2011. It looks rather like a sort of hobbit house, I think. Um, it's a low-emissions and low-impact settlement. No mains power, no water, no waste collection... Uh, and built using local materials, all of which would seem to be very environmentally friendly. It's got wood, cob, earth, turf, roof, wool, insulation, and so on, and 75% of the resources generated on site. There's a picture of the, of the residents there in the image on the right. In 2011. The problem with it, of course, is that... Um, when these things were built, it, it nicely demonstrated one of the main issues around eco-towns and villages, and that is that there can be tension between national policy, we want to house people, and we want to house people in an environmentally friendly way, uh, with good quality housing and so on, but locally there may be objections, and of course in this case there were cited objections, a number of breaches of the planning guidance. The one I liked particularly was the fire hazards, because one of the houses actually had an open fire under the bath. Um, I presumably you have to be careful before you drop the baby into it that you're not dropping it into boiling water, or perhaps they're so cold anyway that uh, that doesn't arise. But number of hazards, a number of hazards. Um, outside composting toilets, which are not part of national guidelines on uh, settlements these days. And it, you, they used unspecified but recyclable materials and couldn't demonstrate where they'd come from in every case. In fact, retrospectively, these settlements were given planning permission. Um, and perhaps, you know, if we look at them, those, are, uh, those conform to some people's idea of what a, an ecologically benign settlement might look like. That, of course, begs the question of whether you would like to live in one. Um, I'm not sure I would. It's a bit sort of open plan, I think, inside for my taste. Um, so that tension then between national policy and local implementation. 
With an eye to technology, though, this is one that eschewed, as I said, um, technology, modern technology almost altogether, um, we get this kind of thing. This is uh, the Tread Likely Eco Village proposal in the Cotswolds, put in by um, a design studio. And um, it hasn't been built, as far as I know, but it was a, a supposedly a Code 6 village. A Code 6 refers to its impeccable uh, environmental credentials in relation to energy efficiency. As it says here, it will employ state-of-the-art zero-carbon systems to power and heat itself. Um, and it talks about community being created through the design, encouraging interna interaction of people, places and activity. If you look very carefully, you can see there's a group in the bottom right-hand corner swimming together. Um, I think fun is important, of course. Um, and the designers said the lakes will take on the tread-lightly identity and the lakes will shape the village's footprint. I, it concerns me rather that actually a minor chase in, a tr change in the hydrological balance, for example, in relation to uh, um, climate change, might, reduce, uh, might produce the swimming in the living room rather than outside in the pool. But um, that's a different form of eco-village, clearly. I don't actually like it. I think it, the design is rather ugly, and I think the layout is absolutely appalling. Uh, some buildings there that sort of look onto the back of other people's properties. Uh, so it's not, not very exciting, not very interesting, and I actually think probably not very clever. Um, in terms of genuine attempts and urgent attempts to do it, many of you will be aware, of course, of the very serious earthquakes in Christchurch in New Zealand a few years ago. And so they were actually faced with uh, real questions about how to rebuild very large areas of the city in, in an environmentally friendly way. Um, and this is the kind of thing that they were looking at. Uh, one of the things which became important to them when they were doing this as a result of the experience of the earthquake was that their eco-town, uh, which they wanted to do, had to be a food-resilient town, in which case they started to incorporate into the design opportunities for growing food within the city boundaries. And you can see there some sort of raised beds for vegetables and some greenhouses and so on. Okay, now, um, I'll just show you a little video here about a London eco-community. We are consuming resources much faster than the planet can regenerate them, so we are going to have to look at uh, living in ways which mean we use these resources much more efficiently. And we have an increasingly urbanised population consuming more. So these are some of the problems that we're going to have to face up to in the next few years. If we're going to build new homes, they're going to be there for 50 years or more. Uh, and, and so we need to set things up sustainably now so that we're being resource efficient for the future. And it's not just about the environment, it's about saving money, it's about a better quality of life. The way people live in, in most ordinary homes is actually quite unsustainable. They have homes which consume a lot of energy. It's not easy for them to live without a car. It's not easy necessarily for them to recycle. So at Bedzed we've tried to make the green choice the easy choice. We've got very energy efficient homes. Um, so you just live in them as a normal home, but your carbon footprint is reduced. Although we thought you've got to save energy in the buildings, it was as much about the choices and decisions we make every day choosing to walk to the shops instead of jumping in the car, using renewable energy. It's, it's just about not being wasteful. 
When we started working on BEDZ back in 1997, sustainability was much more of an uh, enthusiast fringe activity and now it's really mainstream. Everybody understands their carbon footprints, knows they need to do something about it. When we started this project, it was unusual. So, for example, this was the first zero carbon uh, development proposed in the UK. Um, but now, in fact, it's become government policy. And large numbers of companies now are starting to look at all sorts of green technologies. Governments are looking at uh, policies which will support this sort of development. Sometimes you hear what ministers say and you have to almost pinch yourself, which is fantastic. I think what we need to do now is really deliver in scale, though. You know, there's lots of talk, lots of policies. What we've really got to do now is really tackle this mainstream. So that short video is about a community housing scheme called BedZed in London, and I think it illustrates some of the aspirations of eco-towns very, very nicely. The project, as you will have seen on there from the text on the screen, that was initiated by Bioregional, about an organisation called Bioregional, about 20 years ago, developed in partnership with a charity, the Peabody Trust, and designed with architects called Zed Factory, who are also part of the BedZed group, and Arup engineers. Now, Peabody, interestingly, is one of the largest and longest established providers of social housing in London, and the accommodation in this settlement is very mixed, ranging from one-bedroom apartments to four-bedroomed houses. Um, half were sold on the open market, a quarter were reserved for social or low-cost rent by Peabody, and the remaining quarter were for shared ownership, which at the time was said to be a lower-cost way of buying a house. That might be a bit more debatable, actually, but at least, at least in the first instance, it's a lower-cost way of buying a house. So it looks attractive, and some of the indicators from this, uh, from this development are very positive. So on the slide, some of those indicators. Uh, Bedzed residents know a lot of their neighbours. They, um, there things there about being inclusive, about uh, we the wealth of residents. Um, water consumption is only about 50% of the London average. Half of the construction materials came reasonably locally. It's got an on-site car club. Um, and uh, Bedzed produces what's said on here. It says zero carbon, but it's actually 37% less carbon dioxide emissions from gas and electricity than an average development of the same size and mix of uses. Now, when this was produced, this diagram, and that particular, that last point in particular, 37% was pretty good. Actually, today, that's not enough. That's nowhere near enough to hit the current targets. But perhaps more importantly, uh, oh, and also setting aside the, um, the, the water issue, the water system that they use has been very, very unsuccessful and difficult to manage. It's it had all sorts of technical problems. But even bearing that in mind, this is not actually an eco-town, because despite its strong environmental and community credentials, community in its own right, people travel out by car, or by other mechanisms, to work elsewhere in London for the most part. And also, as I said in relation to the carbon dioxide, the criteria for eco-status have tightened somewhat since this was developed. Now, summarising where we are today in general terms with eco-town concepts, these settlements are intended, as it said in the visio, to push residents towards 
lower environmental impact with reduced energy and water use <clears throat> and waste generation by design. One of the people in that video said, It'll, we make it easy for people to do this. Community-related elements are seen as important, knowledge of neighbours and so on, and the mental and physical health of the residents, so walking, cycling and so on. Um, today, we're, those um, settlements, these eco-towns, are also seen as having a stimulating role as exemplars for other kinds of housing areas. Now, I want to switch to look at the last few, uh, last couple of days, uh, last couple of decades or so. Eco-town concepts, these are, these are the sort of things that I've been, I've been talking about. Um, uh, what I haven't picked up actually in here is the example settlements. These, are in, these settlements are in, intended to inspire other developments. Now, eco-towns have a very long history in the UK. Um, from the early attempts of philanthropists and industrialists to accommodate their workforces in what were at least acceptable housing in places like Port Sunlight to other experimental settlements such as Letchworth, Garden City... Apologies, I've got my slides in the wrong order here, but here we've got Letchworth Garden City. Um, some of you will be familiar with it, started in the early 1900s by Ebenezer Howard, and it has a population today of about 34,000 people. You can see it is a garden city, but at that time, in the early 1900s, garden was synonymous with eco. So it has, um, it's designed to be self-contained, it was a very low density of housing, a lot of green space, um, in, and uh, self-contained in terms of resources such as water and power, and community-focused within a constraining area of countryside where food could be grown and brought into the town. Um, not, a, not every house, despite the fact that it's called a garden city, not every house had a garden. There was some industry, there were jobs... Um, there was a railway that could take people elsewhere to work because, obviously, at this time, cars, uh, at the time it was planned, cars were not common. And um, the housing was generally relatively inexpensive. Um, no notably, uh, in terms of en entertainment and social activities, you may know the story about Letchworth. There was one pub, but it wasn't permitted to sell alcohol. Um, in the interests of maintaining the, uh, the, uh, the good status of the, of the residents... Now, many of the main features of British urban design in the 20th century owe their origins to Letchworth Garden City, and it has been described as a social experiment on a par with the welfare state, a social experiment that affected us all and still does, according to one commentator. And it was followed by a raft of other developments, including the well-known British new towns of the 1940s and 50s, which had similar sorts of aspirations, and experimented with architecture, social structure, and degrees of self-containedness, particularly as car ownership was growing rapidly and towns began to sprawl out into the countryside. Now, there isn't time today to discuss the various aspirations towards this utopian living. Opinion of their successes has waxed and waned. But I want to switch to... Around about 2007, when the term eco-town first really started to be used. This more recent story starts under, uh, under a Labour government with then, I think it was the Environment Secretary, John Prescott, 
he began to suggest an approach to new housing development that seemed likely to be widely welcomed by the public. Now, you may draw political conclusions from this as we go through. It was picked up in May 2007 by Gordon Brown, who just, uh, just uh, in the run-up to the election to be leader of the Labour Party and hence Prime Minister, he, he announced that it was the government's intention to commission five eco-towns, totalling about 100,000 homes. And he was inspired by developments at Hammerby in Sweden. I'm sorry I got the, the slide in the wrong order here, but the Hammerby model was a, really a model about how to develop towns in an environmentally friendly way by lots of recycling and reuse of resources. So things like fuels and energy, uh, energy from waste, minimizing water, recovering nutrients from water, uh, and so on. So lots of things on here, including those NVAC systems that I showed uh, uh, in an earlier slide. And um, um, deep green settlements. But this is all about the physical nature of the environment. It's not very much about the social um, elements of the environment. That came later. But we've got biogas fuel vehicles and, and so on. So this was an experiment done in, 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 in Sweden. So Gordon Brown seemed to be particularly taken by that. And um, these principles, uh, uh, as I said, related to the way the environment was managed in a, in a circular, circular fashion, was picked up um, uh, widely in the press. In fact, later on, some of the construction at Hammerby was subsequently, sub subsequently revealed not to be ideal. And uh, one of the things that's come to, late, uh, come to light recently is that there was widespread use of plastic cladding on buildings, which um, a technique, obviously, that's had disastrous repercussions at, at Grenfell Towers in, in London recently, and it's, it's very widely used in, in Hammerby. Um, but what was said by commentators at the time was that these eco-towns were being suggested because the government, government of the day's intention was to uh, support a home-owning, asset-owning, wealth-owning democracy. So political reason for suggesting these. And the thought was that these would be very, very popular with the public. And indeed, in 2007, in July, a document entitled Homes for the Future was published. And by September of 2007, this is all happening very quickly, on a tide of enthusiasm, the number of suggested towns had been doubled from five to ten, with one in each region. I think there are ten on here. It might not be quite ten, but there were ten anyway. Um, so that was 2007. Now, in fact, what happened subsequently was 57 proposals were submitted by a variety of people um, for consideration. And um, a cynical view would say that these were a dog's breakfast. I mean, the, some of them were principally rejected housing estate schemes with some sort of greenwash over it, saying, well, these are really nice, everybody's got a garden, or whatever. Um, some of them had been actually rejected as planning applications previously. Um, they had all sorts of different architecture, all sorts of different principles behind them, broadly, allegedly, environmental, environmentally friendly. As I say, the number that was going to be approved went from 5 to 10, then it went from 5 to 15, then to 12, and uh, finally it went back to 4, in fact. And uh, I've just put this image up just to remind us, and we'll see a number of images like this, in fact, far from prompting widespread public acclaim, it prompted widespread public outrage. 
um, including something for Shrewsbury, that was a bit later on. But there was widespread outrage. Um, people did not like them at all. They did not want eco-towns or indeed any other kinds of towns in their areas, despite the fact that these had uh, allegedly good uh, credentials. The proposals were met with a barrage of disinformation. I, I just want to read you one of the um, one of the things that was said. Uh, well, what the things that were said about them? Uh, people talked about them swamping rural villages, uh, generating massive traffic flows, loss of the green belt, damaging wildlife, risks of commuter settlements, and that they would skew investment away from refurbishing inner cities and redesigning inner cities. The planners liked them, actually. The planners liked them very much. Architects liked them very much. Um, and the, particularly one of the planning organisations, or a, a spokesman from one of the planning organisations, talked about the opposition that emerged to these things, describing it as a tide of bile, nostalgia, disinformation, selfishness, paranoia, and smear tactics to cast doubt on the plans. So a lot of, um, a lot of differences of opinion here. Um, by, and there's another one there, that sort of notice, no to a new town, Pattiswick under concrete. This largely emerged and escalated when the actual locations of some of these eco-towns were announced. Now interestingly here, you see Scotland has disappeared uh, altogether from the proposals. Originally, there was a proposal to have an eco-town in every region as a kind of demonstration, uh, but uh, as I say, in this instance, Scotland, the, the Scottish proposal uh, at Can uh, Car Cardenden in Fife disappeared. And in fact, the proposals changed. There was a bewildering set of changes in the proposals, absolutely um, impossible to follow. I tried to do a series of maps showing what had come and gone. It's Im it absolutely impossible. Um, in the middle of this, uh, in, um, some, some planning policy was issued, and to, to compound the problem, the standards that were required by these settlements in terms of uh, the percentage of open space and the percentage of affordable housing and so on kept being adjusted. And in the middle of this sequence, of course, a little, well, a little later on from here, there was a change of government as well. Generally, what was happening is there was a move away from saying that eco-towns are just about recycling towards a move, uh, towards a position that said this is much more about social aspects, such as jobs. And you can see why this has happened in 2008, in the middle of this, we had the economic crash. So a lot of concern about jobs. Um, so, some of the opposition. Um, this is to Ford. Ford is in the, uh, on near the south coast in this diagram. And we've got Ford objectors here saying no to an eco-town. It's an eco-con. And a good time to listen, Gordon. Uh, there's a word blocked out on that. I was curious as to what it might have been. But um, anyway, I can't tell. But uh, a good time to listen. And... Um, it's gone on. There's another round of proposed sites being announced here. Um, I can't actually remember what date this was. Uh, and another round of objections is Fradley this time. Um, can't remember where Fradley is, but Fradley against Kerbera Towns. This is local residents objecting about a proposal that is near to them, of course. Say no to eco-towns. Um, what we ended up with uh, in about 2010 
2009, was actually only four proposals going through. And uh, two of them, I'll just pick up some images in a minute, two of them. One of, one of them was Northwest Bista, which is not actually on any of the previous um, uh, um, submissions. And the one in the southwest in, in Cornwall, the China Clay community, which was on some of the previous maps there. It's called the Imeris China Clay uh, uh, community because the land was all owned by Imeris. And so they were uh, wanting to increase the value of their land holding. There's another set of objections there from Marston Vale. Um, farming, not fabrication for Marston Vale. Marston Vale is a greenfield site, as were many of the other sites. Okay, so there's the, the four that we left. Now, let's just have a look at the Imeris one. These are just images taken from um, Google Earth. So you can see here what we're dealing with. We're dealing with a number of sites in an area that has been severely environmentally damaged by China clay mining near St. Austell. If, in fact, it isn't an eco-town at all. It's five different housing estates around a hole in the ground, um, uncharitably. The total number of houses is very small. There's no way any of those could actually be a self-contained community. And they would put, obviously, traffic demands on, uh, on, on the region, um, a region which is actually in the summer months particularly very, very busy. Um, looking uh, more recently, it changed. By 2013, most of the sites have been dropped, but they're now proposing to build 1,500 homes at Penwithick, which is one of the sites that was on the, the, the site in the centre of the previous diagram. The others seem to have disappeared, and uh, just this one, uh, this one proposal, which would include a primary school, a technical park, solar farms, and sorry, recreational areas. Okay, so it's not just about recycling. There is some token given to some of the uh, criteria for eco-towns. Here's another one, Bista, again, not part of the um, original proposals in Oxfordshire. And the um, first proposal it says in here was in 2009. It's not on most of the early maps at all. Um, and Bista is an interesting one too, because if any of you that know anything about Bista, and those of you that travel regularly in, in and out of Marleybone, as I do, will know what Bista is famous for. And it is not ecology or environmental friendliness, it is consumerism. Um, if you've seen the nice people in those lovely little jackets standing in, in pillbox hats encouraging you onto trains to go shopping at the Bista shopping village, that's what Bista is about. So there's Northwest Bista in 2009, but it is happening. And uh, Bista there in the uh, top right of the image, the fields there, this is the Northwest Bista eco town uh, in 2017. You can see it started to be. Um, constructed. It, there's a school in the middle of the construction site there, housing emerging, and so on. Okay, now, what then do we learn from this sequence of, of um, uh, changes and uh, this, this, this recent history of eco-towns? Well, what we learn about is about competing influences. I've only put three on here in this, in this Venn diagram. I think we've got an oscillation of opinion going on here about what is important. We've got three things I've identified here. The quality of life of the incoming population, which could be whether they have a job, whether they have a garden, what their house is like, how much it costs, and so on. We've got 
Issues to do with the retention of the countryside and farmland and ecological value, so I'm broadly putting that into a green circle there. And we've got architects pressing issues to do with the visual attraction of the buildings and the design concepts and so on. Um, uh, perhaps, as I said, a backdrop of individual hubris there for the people involved. The whole thing has a backdrop which is about national politics, about location-specific influences, about the state of the economy, about local politics, and about the profit from the land value increases and the construction activities. Those are the backdrop. And within that, we have lots of changes going on in attitudes. We have uh, changes in the attitudes to, uh, to jobs, for example. So at the beginning, when we first looked at jobs, uh, when we first looked at um, in 2007, jobs were not really part of the, on the agenda at all. It was, um, it, it was issues about quality of life um, uh, in, in a physical sense, in terms of housing and so on, and meeting housing needs. Now, it's much more about social aspects and so on. So we've got competing influences then, things playing out on a national stage, and this competition between national policy and local interpretation, where nationally there is seen to be a very important need for housing, environmentally friendly housing would be good, thought to be popular, and then locally where people don't, don't want it, of course, whether it's environmentally friendly or not, or at least so it appears from the objections. Um, we have very little information that confirms any of this opinion. And I think this is, this is an interesting one. Um, some of you may have guessed that I would talk briefly about wicked problems, but if you're not familiar with the, with the terminology here, wicked problems are problems which are characterised by a number of different qualities. We have what, in terms of accommodation and eco-towns, we have a wicked problem. We have a very poorly formulated and complex problem with physical and human and sociological dimensions and so on, where if we do something somewhere, it has an impact on somewhere else at another time, later, or in another, another village and so on. Many different stakeholders. We don't agree about what's important. We use the terminology in different ways. And we don't know if the problem, if we ever get there, has the problem been solved? Is Bista, for example, going to be a proper eco-town? We, we just don't know because it, it, we wouldn't know if we got there, I suspect, if it was finished, if it ever is finished. In fact, there's probably no prospect of an end to it. Um, we also, in addition to talking about wicked problems, again, some of you will have come across this, there's now, there is now a new language here being used by researchers about super wicked problems where time is running out and we do really have a pressing need for new uh, accommodation, new homes for people in this country, where those, as it says here, those who cause the problem also seek to provide a solution and the central authority needed to address the problem is weak or non-existent or in this case divided, I think, between national and local interests and People are taking policy decisions with very short-term time horizons. They're not thinking about the long-term. They're thinking, will this keep me in government? Or will this keep me in the public eye locally, for example? If we talk about this um, in particular um, frame, 
Let me take you back to this, uh, well, the, one of the issues here um, about, uh, about terminology, and, and uh, I would add to this lack of evidence. Um, let's just take the issue of compactness, for example. We, if we go back to Ebenezer Howard's Garden City, um, it, he said, actually, this is compact. This is constrained. In fact, the density, the housing density, is very low, and we've got farmland all around it, a belt of land, he described it as, which subsequently we began to use the word green belt. It was incorporated into legislation and so on. But he said it's compact, and compact is good. Compact restricts your town, leaves the countryside untouched. He hadn't perhaps foreseen the advent of the motor car. But there are other views on this, of course. The, another view says, well, if we build towns that have lots of green space within them, they won't be compact, but people will have access to this green space. And that may be important for mental health of residents. Now, we don't actually have very much information at all about whether the presence of green space actually impacts on people's mental health. It's not clear at all from the, um, from the, legislation, uh, from, from the uh, research, There's very little research, is commonly cited. So we've got these super wicked problems. The characteristics of tackling wicked problems, or what's said to be important in tackling wicked problems, is that there is plenty of dialogue. And certainly in terms of key concepts in ecotown design today, as well as all those issues to do with natural capital and valuing green space and using space for multiple purposes, like having playgrounds which can provide flood water storage and so on. Um, the bottom but one of those points there is about collaborative and holistic planning, drawing on local community views. Community views. Now, that's going to be very difficult, isn't it? Particularly since many of these proposals are led entirely these days from the private sector, almost entirely from the private sector. This is... Just my concluding example, um, I live actually near Stratford-upon-Avon myself, nowhere near where this is going to be, but this is the proposal at Long Marston in, in, um, in Stratford, near Stratford-upon-Avon. So we've got Stratford-upon-Avon in the top right of the map there, and Long Marston Airfield it was, um, towards the centre of the image. This is a proposal which popped up in actually around 2009, and has been coming and going ever since. But what's happened recently is that the, uh, in 2015, the government dropped its proposals for eco-towns almost altogether. But by 2017, we are back with something called garden villages. And this has been put forward in 2007 as a garden village, which has, again, different kinds of non-evidence-based environmental characteristics. If you read the... Um, if you read the, the brochure for it, it's 3,500 new homes within parkland and wooded glades. This is not a, a compact settlement. This is quite a, uh, a widely spread settlement um, designed with garden city principles. We're back to Ebenezer Howard. Um, there's a map here showing you what it looks like. It actually looks remarkably like some of the early maps of garden cities with that central green area. Think of my Poundbury picture, these green lanes going out so you can walk out to the countryside. It has a footpath to get to town or a, a cycleway. Um, it has all sorts of wildlife attributes according to the diagram, or will have, and, and will have a secondary school and a primary school. Um, this, this is not um, housing 
on there because it's not being built yet, it's only just been proposed, but this is the kind of housing that's being looked at. Um, as you see, low density with gardens um, and other characteristics, local shops and services, three new schools, sports provisions, roads, greenways, buses, rail potentially, um, and green infrastructure, so sustainable drainage to stop flooding and so on, landscapes, streets and homes with family gardens. It looks very, very attractive when you read the prospectus. Would you like to offer an opinion on what the local people think of it? <laughs> Despite the benefits, 465 jobs, apparently, 30 million residents would spend within the local area, creating 438 operational jobs, it's a lot of money, and another 1,900 jobs indirectly, this, as in the, all the recent proposals, um, I can't remember exactly how many eco-town proposals there are. Um, uh, sorry, 10, eco, 10 garden towns and 14 villages uh, in the latest proposals, mostly in greenfield sites. And you see that figure there in the middle, 35 million bonus payments to the local authorities. This is a, sub, a subsidy from central government to local authorities to encourage them to have eco-towns and eco-villages. So there's a lot of money going on here. Um, there's a, a wonderfully named um, uh, local pressure group in this area, and I, it's so wonderfully named, I can't uh, remember what the acronym stands for. The acronym is BARD, which is jolly good for Stratford-upon-Avon, but it's very difficult to get a name into that. It's actually called the Better Accessible Responsible Development Group, BARD. Um, they, so incensed were they by the proposals back in 2010, that they threatened to take, or they tried to get a judicial review of the way the decisions were being made on the basis that the community had not been involved. They failed, actually, and also were faced with paying the costs of government in, in having precipitated that um, investigation. Um, but their, uh, Bard's uh, view on this is, as you see here, stop the new eco-town. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs>